And thus, the tragic <laughs> terribleness has come to full fruition, right? Welcome back, wonderful listeners, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Here we are. We're back on to the second play of our Master's Month. Yes, so exciting. We love to do themed month. We've had a lot of great ones in the past. This is another great one as we get to spend four weeks on four ancient Greek plays, the original masters of the art. Last week, we got to talk about Aristophanes' wild, silly, sort of anti-tragedy comedy play called The Birds. It's a wild one. It's a weird one. And we're pivoting in so many ways today (laughs) in content, in theme, in, of course, form, and and in um, just generally in transferring away from a weird outskirts play to uh, an ancient Greek play that is kind of the center of the ancient Greek lexicon, at least as far as most people know it. And interestingly, it would have been the center of the lexicon for Aristophanes as well when he was writing The Birds. These plays were the center of Greek theater. The tragedies of, of Greek theater were the centerpiece around which the comedies then were born out of. So, so yeah, we, we're going to be turning back in time a little bit, back in, in terms of when the play was written and also backwards into the form of tragedy in talking about the play Antigone by Sophocles. Yeah, Antigone is a play a lot of people recognize. Of course, it had a really famous adaption into a different kind of play, also called Antigone, but it it is so familiar to so many people. Besides Oedipus Rex, this is probably the next most familiar play to most people. And it's even more familiar to Jackson and I than even that level because uh, it might be that the only other play this is true for that we've talked about is Man of La Mancha. I might be wrong about that. But we both performed in this play together when we were in college. Jackson played Creon and I played Tiresias in a, it was sort of a post-apocalyptic landscape kind of production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is only the second play that we We've talked about that we were in together uh, while we were in college. So and yeah, no, we we it was a fun play. Very, I love the kind of <laughs> post-apocalyptic hellscape theme, and that's in general true of this play. It's a very military play. Um, as we as once we get into the synopsis, a lot of people when they anachronize it or choose to move the play around, hang on to that military theme or something apocalyptic has happened to the community that 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 feeds the information of the play. And it was certainly a really fun interpretation that we got to play with. Yeah, and the play, of course, has so much to do with power and partly about the dangers of one person holding too much power. And uh, for Sophocles, that was a theme that he was concerned about in a lot of his writing. And and so you can imagine how a post-apocalyptic play like Jackson and I were in, how that theme may manifest itself kind of in that kind of production landscape. It was great fun. I got to play an old uh, crazy guy, basically, with I had to grow my beard out really long and dye it 
like yeah. gray and poked <laughs> out from under this like ragged hood. I remember I couldn't see worth a lick because the right. hood was covering my face. And I was playing blind Teresius, so there was a good there was a good match there. Yeah, we, we we're inverse beard wise as far as our logo goes now too, because like in our logo, I'm the one with the long beard, but I had to like shave straight down to military cut, and then Jacob was the one who's normally clean shaven in our logo or closer to clean shaven in yeah, our logo. Short beard, short beard. short short beard, and uh, he got he got the enormous beard. So <laughs> there you go. There's there's a little bit of our history with that. Um, we're gonna jump into the conversation of this play that we we both love. It's a it's a fantastic play. Before we jump into it though, I do want to take just a second and. Thank Thank our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all so much for the the support that you offer the show and the sort of community building that you are a part of in the show. Those of you who listen to the show know that we love doing it. We love getting to have these conversations with each other and everyone out there listening. Uh, it's not a free endeavor, though. And so those folks who have made the choice to become patrons of the show have made that step into helping to continue to build the community of this show at patreon.com slash no script podcast. You'll find uh, uh, a bunch of different tiers of membership. The lowest one is just $1. And at that that $1 amount over the course of uh, 12 months, $12 over the course of the year, um, that's that helps out the show enormously. So thank you to everyone who's made that choice already. And to those of you who want to... Uh, be a part of uh, being sure that we continue to have these sorts of conversations. Patreon is a great way to help. So head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast, and we will see you over there. Thank you. Thank you to our supporters. You are wonderful. And now back to the script. Here we go. All right. So Sophocles is a playwright we've already talked about. The only other ancient Greek play we have talked about before this themed month was Oedipus Rex itself. And Sophocles, the Oedipus Rex, and this play Antigone are among the seven plays of his that we have remaining of the more than 120 plays that we think that he wrote. And so we mentioned this as we went through some of the context last week, that one of the great tragedies, if you will, of the, the truth of ancient Greek drama is that we just don't have most of it. Not even like 51% of it. We don't have the right. majority, the large majority of the plays that we think exist, we do not have. And this is one of the few that we do, and, and it's famous for that reason. Um, so Sophocles has seven plays. Aeschylus has seven plays that have survived. And Aeschylus and Sophocles were somewhat contemporaries. Aeschylus was a little bit older than him. Euripides was then a later contemporary, would have been a younger playwright at the time. Euripides, I'm sorry. And um, Sophocles you competed in these competitions as was happened at these festivals of Dionysus. And they were presented as three tragedies in a satyr play. And then judges would sort of pick highlights and first place, second place, third place prizes from among that body of work. And famously, in Sophocles' first real endeavor into this foyer, uh, where he won successfully, he beat Aeschylus, his senior in that competition. Competition. Again, we kind of laughed last week about the fact that we still know this stuff. Like, you can still talk about <laughs> Sophocles beat Aeschylus. Aeschylus is mentor, his senior playwright. He beat us. It's like the drama. Thousands of years later now, we still know stuff like that. But Sophocles won 18 competitions over the course of the however many of them he participated in. And actually, as far as we know, never placed lower than second in any competition he was in, which is incredible as a playwright. And 
that speaks to how history has seen Sophocles across time and how his contemporaries saw him as an absolute master. Probably the best of the four ancient Greek playwrights who we have plays. Now, there were lots of others, of course, that we don't have, but we have plays from Euripides, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Aristophanes. And of those four, it is sort of widely considered that Sophocles was the best of them, was the real master of his time, and that is kind of held true across time. You may have a specific different opinion, but that's kind of how history has looked at it. Sophocles was also hugely respected by his fellows, by his society, not only as a playwright, but as a person. In in fact, when Athens went on to face some major crises, Sophocles was one of the 10 people elected to guide Athens through those major crises, to hold on to ideas of democracy um, against tyranny, um, against aristocracy taking over and things like that. And so that becomes kind of part of what Sophocles did a lot of writing about, too. Antigone is one of the plays that we don't know exactly when it was written. Um, We think around 440 BCE. um, And it's the third in the order of the sequence of plays that tie together. Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone are plays which are tied together telling some of the life of this royal family. There are others, but those three major ones. And Antigone's third chronologically in that group, but was actually written first. And it is widely viewed as an adaption of a story that many folks of his culture, of Sophocles' culture, would have known, which is this story about uh, an army attacking and all of their dead were left on the battlefield and were told that they could not be buried. So rather than the one person in the play, it was a whole army. And then in the story, the, the opposing army actually comes back and fights to be able to bury their dead. And that, that would have been a widely known story at the time. And Sophocles then potentially what he was doing was taking that story and making it specific to one person who tries to bury one person who's told that they cannot be buried. Um, it, it's Antigone is a, a character in the other two plays in that group. Again, there's more plays in the group, but those three major ones, she's uh, obviously one of the children of Oedipus in Oedipus Rex, one of the daughters that appear and kind of highlight the tragedy and grief of what Oedipus is leaving behind. Um, she does appear in Oedipus a Colonist. Her father is blinded, of course, at the time because of what happens in Oedipus Rex. And so she sort of serves as her father's guide. And then in that play, which is a piece that I do think is important to getting us into this play, Creon captures Antigone and takes her back to Thebes. And she's used then to blackmail her father, the blinded Oedipus, in that play. And you can sort of see what relationship Creon and Antigone have at the beginning of this play more about her. Euripides, the other one of the other four playwrights that we have, he also wrote a play about Antigone, but in his play, Dionysus sort of swoops in at the end and saves everybody from all the tragedy that occurs in Sophocles' play. Uh, Haman and Antigone do get to be married in that one. She doesn't die in the tomb and all the stuff that Jackson's about to tell you. 
Um, that, so that's just sort of the general sweep of what happened at the time. It, you know, it's impossible with these ancient Greek plays to then go into detail everything that has happened to the plays from then until now. Antigone is widely, widely, widely adapted. I mean, there are several very, very famous adaptions of this play. Um, you should look those up. Some of them are really, really interesting. Um, some of them are less interesting if you look at them, but some of them are really <laughs> quite good and are fun. It'd be fun to see the plays presented in rep, but across time, Antigone has been held up as one of the real masterworks from the period. Yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of great productions of it. Recently, the National Theater did a production of it that was the it was the kind of for those who were Doctor Who's fan, Doctor Who fans. Uh, there were two doctors in that play. Both Jodie Whittaker and uh, Christopher Eccleston were in that production. So it continues to be produced, continues to be recontextualized into new settings, etc. And I, I don't quote me on this because I, I didn't look it up to confirm, but I believe you can either rent that National Theater production of Antigone if you'd like to see it, or if you have their National Theater at Home subscription, I think it's part of the package. Lots of those plays you can rent individually from them too. So if you're interested in the National Theater, which is a contemporary um, setting for this ancient play, uh, watching that production, some of the scenes from it are, are quite, quite striking. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. I'm going to jump into the synopsis of the play real quick, just to kind of get us into the get us into the story. Um, as as Jacob said, this thing is tied into the story of Oedipus Rex. This is a play about Oedipus's four children and his brother, um, notably his brother. But um, the. Uh, this, the play starts with war. War has hit the city of Thebes, or rather, war has ended in the city of Thebes. The brothers uh, Polynices and Eteocles um, are Oedipus's sons, and Eteocles has uh, defended the city of Thebes against Polynices' uh, rebellion attempt. He's returned with an army to try to overthrow Thebes and take it over. Um, uh, the city succeeds, however, the brothers kill themselves, not kill themselves, kill each other in combat at one of the gates of the city. That's the big event that has just happened. The play opens with Antigone meeting with her sister Ismene, the other two children of Oedipus who are yet alive, um, and talking about uh, the, the fallout of that because it has become clear that Creon has put out a decree that one of the brothers is to be buried in full state, and that is Ateocles, because of his defense of the city, while the other, Polynices, is to be left out in the field for birds to eat for dogs to eat and just to, to not to not go about the proper burial rituals that would bring him into the afterlife. And this is a fairly big deal. It it, it there is some history to um opposing armies and opposing soldiers and especially traitors not being allowed to be buried inside the city by the city, by the public in in the walls of the city. But then usually the family would be allowed to bury them outside the city walls or at minimum they would have their body cast into the sea or buried in like sort of a large pit or something. Or, or burned or, or something. Burned, yeah. Right. But to, to leave a body unburied on the field of battle for animals to attack that's one of the big things they go into in this play was is pretty huge yeah it's an affront to the old laws of the gods which we'll get into a bunch because that's a huge theme of the play is the laws of humanity versus the laws of the gods um 
Uh, Antigone claims that she's going to go out and bury her brother. She doesn't care about the edict. She tries to get Ismene to join her, and Ismene will not join her. Um, she's afraid, probably appropriately, um, and uh, of, of, of the fallout of it, and Antigone uh, kind of notably chides her for her unwillingness to to uh, join her in action, what she feels is the right action. Uh, they, they separate. Antigone claims she's going off to bury her brother, and as we find out later, she is on her way to do so. Then the chorus steps in. The chorus gives us a bit of a proclamation of Creon as the new king and a little bit of history about what happened. That's where we find out a bunch about how the combat just ended and then Creon enters. Creon enters in victory after having, uh, in victory but also in sadness at having lost Polynices who was uh, Thebes' king. Um, that's, that's kind of an important thing to remember is that Polynices was the king of Thebes um, and died. So now the, the throne has fallen to Creon. Yeah, well, and and the brothers Polynices and Antiochus. Oh, I flipped my, that. My, well, my understanding <laughs> yeah. was, and this is not in the play; it's something you have to learn about from the other plays. Um, that Polynices would have, should have, could have been the true king. He was the older of the brothers, and actually potentially was at one point. And Antiochus overthrows him, and Polynices goes to another city and marries, and comes back with their army, which is why he's considered a traitor to try to take back over Thebes. So actually, I think both kings of Thebes, yeah, Antiochus yeah. and Polynices, are now dead. <laughs> right. That's the, yeah. That's true. So both kings of both kings in the line of Oedipus are dead, and now the throne has fallen to. Creon. So Creon takes over and he uh, officially puts out the edict, at least as far as we have heard, that Polynices will not be buried. Polynices is to be left out for the dogs to eat, etc. Um, almost immediately, a sentry appears and says, hey, the body's been buried, um, at least partially, a little bit. There's some dirt over him. We, we didn't know who it was, but I was going to come and tell you. It's a, 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 He's kind of got this long monologue that Creon gets very uh, uh, impatient with about how they've discovered it. Crayon charges the sentry with uh, uh, figuring out who did it, capturing them, or else the sentry will die. Um, uh, th- that that kind of breaks the scene. The chorus gets another kind of lengthy uh, section about laws and and the laws of humanity and the laws of gods. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll dig into the chorus eventually, but I'm going to breeze through them right now because they're, 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 uh, they expound for a while on these things. Um, the, the sentry then returns uh, in the next scene, having captured Antigone, uh, burying her brother more properly. She, they, they laid a trap for her. They uncovered the body, waited for her. She came back. She buried him. And uh, he's brought her in because he's caught her. And this, the, the the way that they catch Antigone is actually, across time, considered kind of a problem for the play. Because why would she go back to do the burial rituals again? They, they've already found the body buried. So in theory, whatever kind of thing happened with the gods and the, uh, you know, needing to bury him properly so he can go on to Hades already happened so why is antigone there again and there's lots of theories like well maybe she forgot the libations the first time and they say specifically that she was there to do it the second time so that could be or maybe she was so paranoid and so dead set on the body being covered no matter what that she sort of ignores the fact that the thing that she was worried about his soul not getting to hades or or however it all works uh you know she ignores the fact that that's already taken care of and is just so stubborn that she's going to cover the body no matter what. Another widely held theory is that she was not responsible for the first burial at all. 
that there may have been other citizens of Thebes who believe strongly that he should be buried, or that the gods themselves covered Polynices' body the first time, and that's, you get this twister thing that happens when Antigone <laughs> yeah. goes the second time. Yep. And so she's actually there to do it herself the second time, um, and she doesn't know that his body was covered the first time. All those are just things that we wonder about, because in truth, it just seems like sort of a convenient plot device from Sophocles, that right. she was back the second <laughs> time and gets caught. <laughs> right, had to get caught again. Somehow she's caught again um, and, and brought and brought into uh, before Creon, who now uh, has to figure out uh, how, how the how this is gonna, how this is going to work. He's publicly declared that whoever does this will die. That they are the enemy of the state. What follows is one of the better debates that 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 anyone has read, that anyone has written between these two about the laws of humanity, the laws of the king, the laws of the state versus the law of gods, and even the laws that predate the gods that Antigone is defending. These kind of hospitality laws, these more uh, moral laws uh, about the dead and what you do with the dead that need to be upheld. That ends with Creon condemning her to death. They also bring Ismene in. Ismene tries to kind of jump on the wagon and do the right thing now, though Antigone rebuffs her, um, and they're both kind of uh, uh, shuffled off in chains, kind of waiting for the judgment of, of Creon. Followed by that is uh, the chorus again uh, comes in. They talk about the doom of Oedipus's children uh, and and kind of connect us back to the story of Oedipus and watching watching his children uh, slowly <laughs> devolve into tragedy. Um, and then another big debate happens. Uh, Haman comes in, and Haman is Creon's son and also the uh, fiancé of Antigone, and he tries to convince Creon that he's on the wrong path here. He uh, tries to convince him by virtue of public opinion, which he thinks he has more uh, access to than Creon does because people are essentially just afraid of Creon. Um and and uh, the 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 debate continues between them for a while before Crayon also puts his foot down against him and alienates Haman as well to the point that Haman says, "Why must you always be right?" Um, uh, Crayon says, "I will bring her in right now. We'll do the sentencing now. I'll make you watch." And Haman says, "No, I'm th that's something I will never do. This is the last time you'll ever see me." And he leaves. Um, and Crayon lets him go. Says he'll burn off his steam. Whatever. Um, after this, uh, Antigone enters, uh, talks about her death with the chorus, um, and is eventually, after kind of a, a, a laying out of what's going to happen to her, we, it becomes clear that she's going to be walled up in a cave, bricked up in a cave, not actually killed by anyone, but allowed to die in either at our, either her own hand or in the course of time in this cave. She's uh, led off by, by people to have that done to her. The chorus then laments Antigone and what's about to happen to her. After which we have the third debate, uh, third significant debate that uh, that happens, which uh, Tiresias, uh, the, the blind prophet, is brought in, uh, is led into the room, and he uh, tells Crayon that he is on the wrong path. Crayon accuses him of being bribed. That's a theme throughout. Crayon thinks a lot of people are bribing and 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 spending money to be sure he has a downfall. Um, uh, Tiresias nails, like sticks to his guns, doesn't let him, doesn't let up, tells him he's in the wrong, and not only is he in the wrong. But the gods are coming now. The gods uh, have figured out that this is wrong, that Crayon is to blame, and all the Furies are coming to exact their vengeance on the one who has broken these old laws. 
this scares Crayon to the point uh, that uh, that he listens to the chorus, who all of a sudden has a change of heart or bravery um, and uh, shows up and tells Crayon that he needs to go stop what's happening. Crayon runs off, tries to stop what's happening, but uh, to no avail. He gets there too late. He buries the ball- body of Polynices and uh, then proceeds to try to get to Antigone's tomb where he finds Antigone has hanged herself. Um, and finds that Haman was there trying to rescue her, but too late for him as well. Um, we get this news by virtue of the mother of, of, uh, Haman and uh, Crayon's wife, who is Eurydice, she comes into the chorus. The chorus tells, or an, a messenger has arrived at the chorus to tell of these terrible things. They tell Eurydice and uh, about about the fact that her son has died, that that Antigone is dead. Eurydice leaves. We find out later to kill herself. What uh, happens at the end? This is where it all starts to come apart. Crayon, <laughs> Crayon comes home. Big lament over Haman. Big lament over what he's done. And then the news hits him that Eurydice has killed herself as well. We have the tragic moment at the end where all the machinations of the tragic hero have been have been uh, brought to their just consequences. And uh, a final monologue from the chorus about wisdom and the wisdom that has been learned by this uh, king and and his attempts at keeping the laws of humanity over the laws of gods. And thus, the tragic terribleness <laughs> has come to full fruition, right? Yeah. Antigone is dead. Creon's son, Haman, is dead. Creon's wife, Eurydice, is dead. And Creon is left actually asking the chorus to kill him in in punishment for these terrible things that he has done. And that is, that you know, that's tragedy for you. That's it, tragedy it done, for done you. And happy. <laughs> It does not. No, and and there's like this this kind of uh, message of just desserts in here, right? This this um, denial, uh, or or really the claim by Crayon early on that he has the power over both the living and the dead. That he gets to decide uh, what what happens. To, that 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 an enemy is not a does does not cease to be an enemy after death. That there are still punishments that should hold true in the afterlife for the dead that get to be exacted through the power of the king, through the power of the state. Um, that arrogance uh, pushes him into these positions, and the vengeance is is swift. As as uh, with the unity of time, this all happens in in essentially like a day ish or or two. Right. Yeah. It's it's like over, uh, you know, contained within something like a 24 hour period. And it happens fairly quickly, one right after the other. And Crayon is establishing himself really from the beginning of the play as the new ruler of Thebes. Now, he's been like regent ruling for a while until the boys could come of age to take their thrones, but now he's establishing himself as king. And I do think that that is a relatively important thing to note about the play it has it, it not gone into great detail I think because the audience already would have known when the play was written where we're at in terms of the stability of the city of Thebes Thebes has just undergone a fairly major civil war the two sons of the previous king fighting in opposing armies and Creon newly king, newly the ruler, because now these two boys are dead. And so when he 
pretty quickly turns a corner from saying robust, royal things like, I will never say anything that would be bad for the city. I will never hold my tongue if I see something wrong. I'll never preference my friend or family. This this city is a ship, and we need to keep the ship afloat. He says these, you know, wonderful-sounding things. And then, really, as soon as he learns that the body has, be, has been buried, he reveals a, a pretty high level of insecurity about all that royal rhetoric and position that he's so claimed. Right, right. Uh, you you imagine, I mean, there's there's all sorts of work been done around around how you choose to play Creon, right? And this is my own bias having played Creon once before. I did some of this work, so bear with me as I go into this. But the the question is 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 how compassionate does is the production to Creon? Um Creon is this this figure who's moving into a space needing to create stability after a war, um and and he thinks that the right way to do that is through rigorous adherence to the law, to the point that he will sacrifice family and and really anything um, to to maintain that adherence to the law. So you so you get right away this that that leads to a space of a, a new king, rigorous uh, uh, adherence to the law that leads immediately to anxious choices for him. Right, like right away, as soon as something comes up, he's reactionary. He's like, we got to we got to find this person. We got to kill them. We got to be sure that they never do this again. That no one ever disrespects the state again and that's like his his core thing is he is he's he's in he has a, a high passion for the state that he has just been given uh and to be sure that he steers it well and he in his first speech after hearing the news that the body has been buried contrary to his orders so his first major public speech of any kind uh he says this line and this is from uh, the paul woodruff translation there's of course a couple different translations we looked at but this is one of them he says some men here have always champed like surf against my orders and obeyed me if at all without cheer they shake their heads when i'm not looking pull out the yoke of justice and are not content with me they are the ones i'm absolutely sure who used bribes to lead our watchmen astray into this crime right so Right after all this rhetoric about the leadership and stability and trying to hold on to what's right and and all of this stuff that he's trying to do, the first thing that comes contrary to his order and his ideas, he immediately goes, there's been people here all along who don't (laughs) like me, who are sneaking around behind my back trying to undermine me. Yeah, that's the really interesting thing about the chorus in this play. The, the chorus in Antigone, I think, is really unique in a lot of ways um, uh, in, in terms of its its com- comparison to other choruses in Greek tragedy and even as the chorus is translated into kind of Middle Ages theater as well. But they're, 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 they're this force that Creon sees as antagonistic to him frequently. Um, uh, or at least it's, it's, he, he, he says that there are people here in this room and, and the people who are there in the room are the chorus. <laughs> so... So uh, the, the, over and over, there's this kind of antagonism towards them, and it's clear that there's some fear from the chorus towards Crayon as well. This kind of, uh, the, the, they're not willing to say uh, very much against him. Occasionally, one will kind of step out and say, this person says truth. And then what proceeds is about a page and a half of Crayon yelling um, at, at why that's not truth. Um, so so yeah, it's this it's weird kind of antagonistic relationship, developing relationship between the chorus and 
uh, Creon. And who the chorus actually is as characters is crucial in that tense relationship. Just like last week, we talked about the chorus of birds being so unique in Aristophanes' play. In this play, this is a chorus of, and this is just what's in the text. I understand a lot of modern adaptions and, and productions don't do this, but in the text, this is a chorus of pretty much old men, renowned, respected folks from the citizenry. Creon actually says, right, I've selected you men from the crowd of the people of Thebes. And we know that they're old because he says, you all I've selected because you've been around since the time of Laius. You've respected him and you respected Oedipus and now you're going to respect me. And so he has this group of um, citizens of Thebes who've been around for a while, have the respect of their fellows and have shown obedience to the throne. But if you're Creon and things start to go wrong, they've really, if you look back, they've really shown obedience to that other guy, Oedipus, right? right. And how do I know <laughs> that they really support me? So this group that he assembled thinking it was going to be sort of a basis of power, right? You people understand loyalty to the king, your respected wise old men become that then it, he sort of turns his head and goes wait maybe you don't respect my power it's the power of this other family that you've really held on to all this time right right crayon has this like bluster that he tries to keep up that's mostly based in his self-confidence he he's he's as soon as he really gets into it as opposed to like he, he doesn't like slowly become kind of manic uh, uh against the chorus but you you see pretty quickly that um, he's, he, he is based solely in his, or his, his, his actions are based solely in his own perception of wisdom. And he's not really open to anyone else as they, as they try to be, you know, a council of elders who respects him and who offers some things in con in contrast to his ideas. He, he rebuffs them time, time after time with the phrase, you've been paid, haven't you? Or you're, 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 you, you're untrusted. You're supporting this other group. Who's, who's coming after me? And then the chorus becomes, I think, equally important in who they are in relationship to Antigone. And I sort of go back and forth how I feel about modern productions where the chorus is more gender and age diverse than this group of older men that would have been imagined in the text, only because I think Antigone as a young woman being drugged before Creon and a group of old men is part of the tension in what's going on. She's surrounded by powerful old men and has to make these speeches and these shows of power in a room where the role of women is not respected. Not just like, oh, the culture didn't respect women, but Creon over and over refers to her as a woman and specifies her role in this, right? I mean, because her brothers are dead, Creon is now the king. There's no assumption that she was going to take the throne. She might yet right. by marrying his son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I, I agree. There is this kind of weird tension of of it's interesting to to uh, approach the chorus as this kind of gender neutral uh, uh, entity that you can cast whoever in. But there is something really compelling. The there was a movie that was done, or the BBC did a recording of this play in 1986, and their translation really leaned into that. Um, whereas my, the translation that I read for this didn't have as much of the the laws of men over and over. But in that production, they they cast the chorus as these all kind of stately old men with, you know, ruffs in their collar and stuff like that. And whenever she said the laws of men, the shot had, you know, 
12 men in the room and it it took on a whole other meaning as she was critiquing and and showing the the uh sometimes the hypocrisies of the laws of men as she was speaking to that group of people and there's a great great moment of reversal of that gender power where creon has uh, announced that antigone and he actually at the time is thinking he's going to kill his mani too he announces that they're both going to die and says lock them up they're only women and even men, warrior men, would run if their death were imminent. Now, of course, several of the men in this play have run from terrible right. things. And yeah. only Antigone has basically said, kill me, whatever. I did the right thing. You know, so she shows up this assumption that he makes about the frailty and fear of women. Even men would not would, would run in the face of death. And Antigone is not at all going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit more about Antigone as she is the, the she's in the title. The play has her name, and yet uh, the tragic hero, uh, in terms of structure, in terms of who uh, you know has the downfall and all that, is Creon. Um, but but Antigone is 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 in the title. She's the force against Creon. She ends up being. <laughs> she's not the tragic hero, but maybe she's the protagonist. Um, so, so she's I think that's definitely the hero in like a colloquial phrase in the terms right. of being the good guy. I want to read you another quote from the play. This is an Antigone quote, and I don't know why. In in all of the many many times I've read and seen this play before, this this moment has never stuck out to me. So maybe it's the specific translation, or I guess. But when I, I listen to an audio format, oh, by the way, LATW does have an audio play, which is quite good, and I. This struck out to me then as well. Um, she's talking, this is a, the moment where she's about to be led away to her death. She's already been locked up. She's been brought out, you know, in chains or whatever, going to be marched down to her death. She and the chorus are discussing what she did and why. And she's talking about how she maybe would not have done this same thing for a child of hers if she had grown up to have children or, uh, or for a husband. But she says... Um, I may have another husband if the first should die and get another child from a new man if I'm a widow. But my mother and father lie in the land of death and there is no ground to grow a brother for me now. And we think about Antigone as this, this character who is on the side of the gods, right? She's doing what she's doing out of like a religious obligation. But I, I'm not sure that is a correct view of Antigone. She, her conversation with Ismene starts and we see it fulfilled in that beautiful line, there's no ground to grow another brother. Really, this is about familial obligation. That's the that's how she uh, explains her actions to Ismene and tries to get her to do it. She says, our brothers belong to us not to Creon, they belong to us. We have an obligation because we are their sisters to do this for them because they're family. Yeah, yeah, Fa family versus state loyalty, right? Like these are that's that's part of what what is being argued in in her defense, which she houses in the gods. But even the play, and I think some of the lines talk about how this is an ancient law prior to the gods. That ancient love is brought up at one point. I think Creon actually says it derogatorily as like you can talk to Antigone about all of her ancient love and and family virtues or whatever, but the state must stand. That's that's the debate that is in here. Is is Antigone. 
claiming of the prior law of love of family, which forces her, not forces her, but compels her to make a really hard choice, a choice that she knows will end in, maybe she doesn't know for sure that it's going to end in death, but as as you said in the context. She, she says in her conversation with Ismaini, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to die and be with my brother in, in righteousness or however your translation would translate that. But like, right, I'm going right. to do the right thing and he and I are going to be happy in our death in our righteous causes. Yeah, and as you said as you said in the context she has no real reason to expect grace from Crayon. Um there is there is no love lost between these two. Right. I saw Crayon one actor Crayon and Oedipus had a huge thing at the end of the Oedipus Rex play and then we learn in the next play Crayon like kidnaps her to yeah. use his blackmail against <laughs> Oedipus. I mean, the the there's tension between those families for a long while. Right, right. And I think that's kind of a, that's an important aspect at least to decide on when you're the the Antigone versus uh, Creon scene, the big debate that they have, you have to kind of decide how familial that is, right? And and the choice, and I think that a choice that I think is a strong choice is Antigone is not expecting much from Creon. She she's not she's not dismayed that he's not going to offer grace to her. She knew going into it, as you said, as the lines say, she knew going into it that she was going to get nothing from Creon as far as grace goes on this. And so she is just there as someone arguing her point, arguing this for the sake of ancient love, love of family and and virtue and the 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 laws that the gods themselves follow versus this arrogance that she sees in her uncle. And many comparisons have been made between Antigone and Creon in terms of their arrogance. And again, Antigone is often seen as this sort of humbled before the gods and doing the right thing person. But but she's got an argumentative, a not willing to really listen and compromise kind of spirit about her too. I think I said when Jackson was doing the synopsis that that's one of the explanations for the mysterious second burial of Polynices is that she's just so stubborn that even though her plight with her brother not getting fair treatment religiously because of his burial has been dealt with because he's already been buried once, she's so stubborn that she's definitely going to have that body covered with dirt, even though it doesn't necessarily mean anything now to her, to her religious argument. So she has some of that combative spirit. I mean, you compare her interaction with Creon to Haman's interaction with Creon. Haman does not have so much of that combative spirit, or he tries a different tactic is maybe a different way to describe that. Yeah, yeah. A little bit more pleading, a little bit more uh, cajoling or trying to present the information well. And I I think you're... the, the. the the focus on the stubbornness right of these of these two and 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 how how they're kind of equally arrogant and stubborn in their views is is what brings the what is what is like a family drama into a a more meta picture a more systemic picture because who wins right it's it's not that one or the other is more convinced or convinces the other of their viewpoint. They are both willing to go all the way um, in terms of, of 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 the ramifications for their argument. Um, but the person who wins is the system. The person who wins is the state. The person who wins is the one who has the benefit of the room full of men, <laughs> old men on their side, right? So so and in that way, there's a kind of compelling uh, critique of 
of the system going on in this play that 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 brings into light two people who can hold their own. They they're not going to convince the other, and and they have strong arguments both ways for what they've done, and yet one uh, is is or one succeeds. There's consequences for him succeeding, and the consequences come from the gods. Um, but but nonetheless. One succeeds over the other by vir- not by virtue of the argument they presented, but by, by by virtue of the power and the space that they occupy within the system. Right, and in fact, several characters say that Antigone's argument has widely won over the citizenry, and perhaps even some of the members of that old men chorus of respected citizenry. But they're so afraid of Creon that they're sort of unwilling to admit that they really have been swayed by Antigone argument. And that is one of the things that is so great about ancient Greek plays and that everything private happens in front of an audience, right? The whole play in this play takes place on the steps of the palace with a group of the most respected, knowledgeable council of citizens watching every beat. Haman, we had what maybe a different dramatist would have written as a very private conversation with his father about, hey, listen, I'm trying to help you out. And you see that that conversation, which sounds sort of reasonable on the page, when you see it on the stage, you realize, well, it's not private. How could Creon consent? He's embarrassed. There's a group of people watching. I mean, it, it changes the dynamic of conversations like Haman's. Right, right. This the situation is different in our in our current cultural context, but also and and also the like the the fervor that's there in this play, right? Love or 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 passion even for the state and passion for the laws of of morality and the gods. Like that's just not that's not a, a common vernacular right now either, right? Like both of those things have things in them that enlightenment thought has deconstructed for us to some extent without really providing a another vessel for which to to aim ourselves at yeah. um but but yeah it's just interesting to note that the the things that we have to kind of reclaim as we, as we try to reclaim what greek structure is trying to do are these these things that we're willing to die on a hill on right that 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 we're willing and to have so much passion for die on a hill in public i i think mm-hmm. i'm thinking not so much about specifically the family aspect although that's part of it but also just about the private aspect right august osage county yeah there's a lot of people around but this is happening inside a private house away from the community there are scenes with two people in a private room i'm thinking of proof uh plays on a porch in a private room i'm thinking of uh oh um uh, oh shoot! What's the play with the brothers who play cards? Uh, Top Dog, Underdog, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. play. Two guys in their private apartment, and mm, yeah. and that they're starting to be over the past twenty years an, a turn back to the public encounters that made these ancient Greek plays what they are. Everything happens in front of an audience. Right, which pushes pushes things out of people, like you were saying, with Creon being embarrassed that his son is chiding him in front of all these people. It pushes things pushes things out of characters, like embarrassed that Antigone is kind of empirically by by virtue of a couple comments of the chorus beating him in terms of his argument, and so he turns to to this this decision to to imprison her and to eventually kill her. So yeah, that 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 public nature pushes characters in ways that the private privacy maybe doesn't. Absolutely. And as we look back into this, like, 
the the conflicts between familial obligations and state obligations, it becomes fascinating then to think about who Haman is, right? Because he his, his conversation with Creon in this play might be my favorite conversation of the play because I love the dual world that it lives in. Haman is trying at once to align himself with Creon to say, I'm here for you. I'm trying to help you. I'm not your opponent. I'm not your enemy. But it's possible that where he falls off is by ending siding with familial obligation over state, even though the familial obligation in his case is his father, right? that yeah. is the type of entreaty that he makes, and it's one that is lost a little bit on Creon. Right. Well, and, and because I think his, his version of the state is the people, is the city. Um, the the people that that Haman has access to or that that he that he's around are the people themselves and and it's interesting to kind of see the generational difference that's almost being suggested here um it, it almost has has I mean we just did man versus Superman not too long ago but it almost has that kind of like early socialism vibe to it right the people are talking in the street and crayon says I have never made one decision by virtue of what the people think of me. <laughs> And and so so you have this 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 debate between the the generation who is currently in power, the younger generation uh, of of Haman, and his his attempts to to uh, serve his father, to give him uh, all the information, to save him from himself. Again, yes, choosing family over you know rigorous following of the laws are rebuffed by the one who controls the law. And that's how Creon starts the play, too, right? Is he, in his his first speech after the Antigone is made, he seemed where it's very family-oriented, right? We need to save our brothers. Creon comes on and says, the state is all. I would never preference my family or friends over the state. The state is what is going to keep us in line. It is our ship. We stay afloat. Preference is out. Familial obligation is out. This is about our community and keeping our city, our government, afloat and thus begins the conflict. In one scene you have Antigone say the brothers are ours no matter what the law says and the next scene you have Creon say family doesn't matter to me the ship of state matters to Yeah, me. over and over Creon picks state over family to the alienation of of close family. To the to the point that like if you if you dig into the history around the family you you find like some mythos around the Creon and Eurydice that they've had to other children who have been lost to them. So, so Haman has this kind of primacy of the last son of Creon, the last child of Creon. And so even to the point that he's, he's willing to follow his love of state, his choice for state to the point that he hears his son say, you will never see me again and I will never see Antigone die. Like that should send up flags, and it probably does for him. That that he's either going to leave forever, or he's he's planning something to to remove himself from the situation. And he says, "Fine, you do that." And and that like that sort of lack of empathy or separation of love for his family on behalf of the state is is the tragic flaw. Um, even more so that sometimes than arrogance for him that in in Creon that brings about his demise. 
Yeah, I mean, arrogance over, like, I'm better than the gods, I don't need to listen to the gods, I think is often prescribed as kind of the general hubris of the play. But I think about what Creon says when he learns that someone has buried the body of Polynices, and the the, the chorus says, this must be the work of the gods. And to me, it doesn't seem like Creon is disparaging the gods in his response. What he says is, the gods would never bury a criminal but it must be one of you one of those secretive clans that have always been opposed to me and so he he i think he assumes i think he must assume that the gods are on his side but that the gods are going to preference the state over deeper blood religious obligations which is just not the case for him, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> as, 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 right. He's just wrong, right? Like, that's, that's kind of the, it's, it's, this is, this is probably one of the best Deus Machinas that I've, that I've read because they don't actually show up, but they do show up in the person of Tiresias, right? Tiresias shows up and says, you, you've messed up and there are f- like hell furies coming. <laughs> And and it's and it's scary enough, like in in the world of the play, right? Like I say, hell furies are coming, and we're like, ah, sure, whatever, Greek mythology. But in the world of the play, uh, the chorus all unanimous, unanimously stands up to Creon for the first time in the whole play after having heard this, right? So it's not something in the reality of the play of like, oh, I wonder what this could mean. You know, a prophet said this. Let's interpret it as a prophecy for someday. The the people behave as if the gods are coming right now to destroy Thebes for its arrogance because it has not allowed their former king the uh, in Polynices to be buried. Yeah, and, and what Tiresias says is coming in these hell furies of Hades that are going to take revenge for... It, there's really a lovely description of how Creon has taken Antigone and put her in a tomb, you know, below, while he's left one that should be in a tomb, an unburied body above on the field, and he's messed with the order and balance of things. And he says, your own boy's corpse is going to pay the price. And it's interesting that it's after that long speech by Tiresias where he says your your son's gonna die as a result of this and that that creon's mind is changed and so you start to look in the character and you say what exactly changes creon's mind because it does it feels like a shift it feels quick in the reading of the text but i think what you mentioned about when Haman stalks off and says you'll never see me again how much does that shake creon how much does he see his arguments about people being paid to oppose him falling apart? How much does that shake Creon? And then finally, how much does Tiresias' uh, acknowledgement that this is going to cost Creon's son his life, how much does that shake Creon? And can you build those things, as Sophocles did so masterfully, into the playing of the character? So the moment of decision, which is that, you know, basically four sentences by the chorus, where Creon then finally goes, you're right. We better save them. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, I, I like, I really like the, the bringing in of the kind of the moment where he remembers 
what Heyman said, right? And and it sort of sets off synapses like, oh no, maybe this is happening. Maybe that's what he meant. I got to go stop it. Uh, I, I also like the kind of backstory argument around Teresius, right? Like last time Teresius showed up, um, in, in, in terms of the story, it was to tell Oedipus some really bad things happened. Um, so, so, um, so, so he's, he's got this reaction to him being in the space. The last line that Teresius gives him on his way out in my translation is, um, let him waste his fine anger upon younger men. Maybe he will learn at last to control a wiser tongue and a better head. Like, Almost no one in the play, maybe Antigone could say that to him, but almost no one, no one else in the play would he actually hear that. I don't think Antigone could have said that to him. I think she would have been <laughs> beheaded on the spot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Because Tiresias represents something, but he both represents the gods, right? The prophet from the gods, but also he represents someone from Crayon's past who he knows has brought truth before that he, that he just can't deny the truth that has happened before. Yeah, and, and so the play, you know, as it shifts into these moments, these final teachings, what the chorus says, and they reflect on the way that, you know, this reverence for the gods has to maintain above all else. In my translation, it says reverence for the gods must never cease is one of the final lines. And about as you grow old, you learn to be wise. And the the tragedies are an interesting world because they're they're written for the audience rather than the characters, right? Creon learns that lesson, but much too late. And so Sophocles says to the crowd, in the emotional experience, the outpouring of all that's in you, this catharsis that you are supposed to have experienced in the wake of watching Creon's fall, in the wake of watching Creon say, the gods side with the state, not with the older tradition of the family, the gods side with me, not with you. In the wake of all of that, here is something for us to consider as a community because these plays are for our community. Right, right. The, the uh, uh, good thing you brought in the pity and fear and catharsis in this because we couldn't have talked about the play without talking about pity and fear. But that's that's what we get at the end, right? We get this this compelling, you know, what what sort of things are you doing? It asks the audience, what sort of things are you doing? What steps are you taking that really just one step wrong, one conviction wrong that could leave you in the same spot, that could leave you uh, in in uh, in ultimate disgrace, having lost everything because of the one choice that you made? It's, it's a little scary, but... <laughs> But yeah. yeah, it's 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 the it's it's, a the, scary. it's, 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 it's what the play is asking, right? <laughs> well, we'll have another chance to talk about the way that tragedy is written for a community, for an idea, for a catharsis when we come to our next tragedy here in our themed month. Uh, Antigone has a fond place in both of our hearts from our uh, tradition, or not, I guess not our tradition, but our experience of, of being in the play together from all the different times we've studied the play. I performed a couple of scenes from different adaptions of Antigone for a class one time. I mean, it's it's been around for forever. It's good to have a conversation on it. And I'm looking forward to the next two Greek plays as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to get to talk about them too. I'm glad we got to talk about this one. This scene is, uh, it's cool that you've done scenes from this play because I find that there's a number of scenes that actually have a back and forth in them that is kind of unique. Most of the time, the back and forth are like paragraphs, right? Um, That are like, you know, little mini monologues. But instead, these are like line by line back and forth debate that make for great, compelling scenes for for acting workshops or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, some of the monologues are really good too. I've been looking to add another monologue to my repertoire and I'm thinking I'm going to cut a little bit of the Heyman monologue mm, uh, nice it's just so good it's a great monologue yeah well-structured stuff and 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 this play is done often monologues are done from it often scenes are done often so we want to kick the conversation out to all of you if you have read this play seen this play been in scenes of this play got to do some dramaturgical work around this play we'd love to get to talk about Antigone with all of you out there please find us on Facebook Instagram or Twitter at the username at noscript podcast we also have a gmail noscript podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about Antigone Antigone with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you like the other episode in our theme month, or you're looking forward to the next two, or you've liked some of the other things that we've done, we really encourage you to pass this podcast along to your friends, your family, anybody that you know that likes theater, that likes scripts. We we love the audience we have dearly. We are so encouraged that the audience continues to grow, and we're looking for your help to grow the audience even further. So send them our way. They can find us at Podbean, where we're hosted, also on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you like us on Facebook, there's a link to the new episode posted every Monday. You can just click and listen from there for the less technologically savvy folks in your life that just need a one click. Facebook is the way to go. So until next week, when we're talking about the next Greek play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.